Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you, Mike and Jenny, for your prayers as well. Good to see you. Um, let me lead us in prayer uh, before we look at those five verses again together. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you um, have revealed yourself to us in your son and in your word about him. And so as we um, look at these verses familiar for many of us this morning, we pray that you would um, soften our hearts. Speak to us afresh. And more than just speak to us, please, by your spirit, would you give us um, the strength and the power to obey what it is you're saying to us and to live in the light of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ours, um, ours is a world where, as far as the media will tell us at least, the church is declining, the church is dying. Indeed, as we, in a year's time, look at the top line census results that hopefully you completed a couple of weeks ago. Um, I imagine those claiming to be Christians will have taken another significant decline, a big dip in the numbers. Uh, it's not to be surprised by take a look at this. Um, image on your screen in a second. It's from the 1890s looking towards uh, St Paul's Cathedral. There we go. That was what 130 years ago and yet look now present day image from the same place and we have there. What do you see as the differences apart from the um, sepia colour uh, but just the London skyline captures in microcosm what many think about faith in our day. It's on the decline, it's irrelevant. No longer do you see the churches. Actually, they are just large empty shells and sold for flats or cafes or restaurants or nightclubs. Now they're overshadowed by tower blocks. No longer churches, but new places of worship, we might say, offices and banks and places that make money. It's striking that in 1890, you see so many church spires. And yet 130 years later, the skyline is dominated by other things. It captures something of what society says about the Christian faith at the moment. No longer what, what Christians say is credible, but rather either an archaic message from yesteryear with little right to be heard on in present day issues or worse than that actually what Christians believe is dangerous to be eliminated done away with no place no space for the Christian message in our current thinking in the eyes of many the days of the church the days of Christendom perhaps has gone and now comes the slow painful slightly embarrassing decline Except, of course, if you look at the actual numbers and you look at the research and you don't just count the churches closing down, but also the new ones that are arriving, the new church plants that are starting, churches being revitalised and turned around. Things are a bit different. And, and yes, of course, some of the older denominations are seeing a reduction in numbers, especially, actually, it seems during COVID. Let me lose those pictures for you. Um, the associated lockdown that's come with COVID as well as talk of drastic reductions that might need to be made in the Church of England, possibly shrinking by a fifth over the next few years. But lots of others are alive and growing and thriving and doing remarkably well. Much to the consternation, much to the confusion of the media in the world. So what's the secret? What makes the difference? What is it that means that some churches grow and others decline? 
is there a secret source? Is there a silver bullet? What is, that must be the $64,000 question, mustn't it? I think it's a similar related question as we come to the book of Acts, because think about it, as Matt was chatting to the kids, just days before the disciples were cowering. They had seen the one they had given it all up for, dying naked on a cross. And to put it bluntly, they had scattered. They had scarpered. They had gone. They may have been claiming they would stick with him or never disown him or never leave. But in reality, they had. And yet here, when Luke's second half begins, the picture is very different. What was it that has transformed them? What has changed them? What has happened to these disciples? Something has happened to them. And friends, if you're watching in, and whether you would call yourself a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic, or you just don't know, I take it you need to come up with an answer for that. Something has transformed these disciples. Perhaps, as some say, perhaps it was mass hallucination, maybe over a number of days in different places and different contexts with different people. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's what has changed them. Or, or maybe they've decided to deliberately bank it all on a lie. They've concocted a lie about Jesus being raised again. They want to save face. They don't want to uh, come to the reality that they've banked it all on the wrong horse and he was the wrong one. He wasn't the Messiah. And so they've concocted some kind of a lie and they're sticking to that. Now, the message of Acts seems to be much more than that. Those two don't seem to work as we read our way through Acts and we see that these people have been genuinely transformed. So we're going to zoom in on just these first five verses in Acts this morning. Um, and we'll take another couple of verses next week and then a few more the week after. Um, but for this week, just two utterly foundational truths for us that we must grasp and we must hold on to. And indeed, we must build upon as we consider kind of the future and the year ahead. And we consider and hope and pray as we return to some kind of normality. And indeed, we do hope and pray that will happen soon. But two truths for us to latch on to. Um, it's worth saying as well. And I'll come to those truths in a second, but it's worth saying as well that these verses go a long way to helping us answer some of those why questions. Why do some churches grow and not others? Why were the disciples transformed and their lives turned upside down? Why do we need to listen to these verses as we think about the next six months? So your first truth then, know that Jesus really rose again. Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to see that Jesus really rose again. And because he really rose again, then nothing is the same. Nothing is the same. Everything changes forever. Let me read some of them again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And he spoke about the kingdom of God. You see, Luke doesn't just think these truths about Jesus are a nice story. 
a nice idea that makes some people feel better and help them get through life. That that's often the corner that we can kind of find ourselves in in our current days as we talk to friends or as we hear those around us talking about the Christian faith. They say, well, the Christian faith is a, is a nice and it's a valid way of looking at the world, they say. And Jesus was clearly a, a great teacher and a great example, they say. Clearly worthy of our respect in many ways, they say. And he can certainly help people today. But we don't doubt that. It's lovely if he can help you. But let's not try and push it any further than that, OK? They say. If it's your truth, if it's a poem that helps you make sense of the world, and if you want to believe that and it does you some good, then that's great. I'm really pleased for you. Well done. But please don't try and force, force your truth on me. But of course, Luke, the guy who wrote Acts in the Gospel of the same name, won't let us have that. He wants us to see that it is not just your truth. No, he wants us to see that it is historical facts. It is not your truth, it is the truth. And that's really relevant for our times because we live in a time where, where your truth is fine, but please don't make it the truth. And yet Luke won't allow us to do that. Have a listen to how Luke opens up his gospel account, the first half of his writings. This is Luke 1, and verse 1. Many, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, there's quite a lot there. What did Luke do? He undertook research and careful investigation. He, he spoke to eyewitnesses. He spoke to the servants of the word, as he says. And why did he write? Well, he wants to give an orderly account, he says. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that you can be convinced, so that you can trust them when you feel wobbly. And who's this for? Well, it's for Theophilus, which means friend of God. That may have been an individual, maybe a Roman convert. But, but in writing to him, so this orderly account to the friend of God would have been read by many. Many then, many now. And who was Luke? Well, most likely Luke was a medical doctor, which then, as in our day, were people of learning and education. People who worked hard. Luke is saying to us, this is not meant to be a comfort blanket that we cling to when our life gets a bit scary and we can't really cope. A comfort blanket that we cling on to, but we know in our heart of hearts that we're just kidding ourselves, that it's just make-believe. No, these are orderly facts and truths, recorded because they were too important not to be recorded, because they change everything. They change everything. And that might in itself be a challenge to you as you hear that. That may be something with implications for you. 
It could be that you're someone who has never really thought through the reality of Jesus or the facts of the resurrection before. It may be that you don't quite know why you're watching this this morning or whenever it is you're watching it. But I wonder if that might be a great thing to explore. We as a church often have Christianity Explored groups at Magdalen Road. Um, a place for people to carefully look at some of these source documents, to carefully weigh some of the evidence, to ask some of the questions and the doubts that we have. But I want to warn you, though, I want to warn you as you think about researching and looking into it, because it's striking that history is littered with people who have sought to disprove it. They've done their best to disprove it. Sometimes they've even taken career breaks to disprove it but they've ended up convinced themselves. Let me just give you a few quick examples. Um, Dr. Simon Greenleaf was a skeptic. Uh, he was at Harvard Law School, um, late 19th century. He wrote three volumes on the laws of legal evidence and he mocked Christians in his law classes at the time. And yet he had some Christian students who, who challenged him to apply his own book to the resurrection of Jesus. He took the challenge. And he concluded that the evidence was so convincing that he became a believer himself. Indeed, he later wrote the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best established facts of history. Or Dr. Benjamin Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, they were both from Cambridge. They were so fed up with Christianity, they so wanted to destroy it, to get rid of it. They took a leave of absence from their studies and their jobs to write a book and to refute the resurrection and indeed the conversion of Saul. As a result of their study, they too became ardent believers and they wrote, reject not until you've examined the evidence. Just one more for you, Dr. Frank Morrison, a lawyer and engineer who's brought up in a very rationalistic background. He liked Jesus, but he thought the resurrection was a myth that was kind of tacked on to the end and he too wanted to write a book to refute it to get rid of it but you guessed it in the process of writing he like the others committed his life to Christ that you can read about his thoughts he wrote a book called who moved the stone so be careful it's worth looking into but be careful because it might change your life forever I take it as a church as well that we need to be convinced afresh of the truth of the resurrection. It's something that often gets battered by skeptics and atheists and the internet. People say dead people don't rise and things like that. But actually the evidence is huge. It's what our faith hinges upon. And at times though, we can feel wobbly. We think, is this really right? Am I really backing the right person here? Is this really the truth? And yet without the resurrection, friends, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no relationship with God. And so there is no point. And yet Luke wants us to cling on to that truth. This is not just an idea. This is not just your truth or my truth. This is the truth. It's striking though, verse 4 shows us that despite this amazing news that Jesus has risen, that people had seen him, that there had been convincing proofs, that he's been teaching for 40 days, that he's been teaching on the kingdom of God, the story is not yet finished. Do you see there in verse 4? On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So if our first point then is know that Jesus really rose again. Our second point is this. Know that Jesus will really empower you. As Matt was telling the kids and the rest of us, this is a story to be continued. This is not game over. It's implied there in the first verse. Verse one, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. But again, as Matt was saying, he's still got stuff to do and he's still got things to teach. In Luke, he wrote about the, the starting. In Acts, the implication is he writes about what he writes about what Jesus continues to do and he continues to teach. And so if Luke is the starter and Acts is the next few pages of what he continues to do, maybe even by his spirit, church history is the story continuing even further. Maybe even your story is part of what Jesus continues to do and to teach because he's still at work today. But here's the thing. You know, if you were to read the end of Luke, that he is not there anymore. Indeed, Jesus is not physically with us anymore. So how does he work in the world? How does he continue to do and to teach? How does the story continue? Well, verse four again, through the work of his people. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And verse five, for John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. I think the answer to why the disciples were so utterly and foundationally transformed in their conduct and in their speech and in their lives and in everything is not ultimately because they saw the risen Jesus, which they did. And that would have been amazing. Don't want to belittle that. But it's actually because God's Holy Spirit lives in his people and he equips them to live for him. And verse five, Luke's readers will know John the Baptist baptised in the Jordan, immersing and cleansing people and turning their lives around. But he said a new era was coming and it wasn't John doing the baptism, it was God himself coming to baptise. And it wasn't water that would cleanse people outwardly for a time. It was God's Holy Spirit who would live within them and that would, would cleanse his people inwardly and forever and would equip them too to, to do the works of Jesus, to speak the words of Jesus, to continue now that Jesus has ascended. And so the church is not dead. And the story is continuing. And Jesus is not finished. The job is not done. In chapter two of Acts, Peter will preach about Jesus. And he will say, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That's an interesting progression there. Verse 32 and 33 of chapter 2 of Acts. Jesus raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father. He receives the promised Holy Spirit and now he pours it out. And there's clear and blatant and obvious evidence of that reality. This is not just an idea. 
This is not just your truth or my truth. This is the truth. The spirit has come. The gift has been given. A couple of points just to make um, as we think about drawing things to a close. Um, this is a unique point in God's plan for his world, a unique point in salvation history. This kind of thing doesn't happen every day, if you like. But I want you to notice they had to wait. That, that is, they simply couldn't accomplish what Jesus wanted them to do without this work of the Holy Spirit in them. So that again, they couldn't accomplish what Jesus wanted them to do without the work of the Spirit living in them. I think it's the same for us. We are useless to the kingdom of God without his Spirit at work in us. Our commission as believers is to work in our daily spheres to enable the kingdom to spread and to grow. But it is no ordinary work. This is the work of God. It's an eternal work. And unless we are first worked on by his spirit, we are useless. We can't do it. We need him. We need the kind of power that only comes from the Holy Spirit. God, God equipping his people to live for him. God enabling his people to do what he calls them to do. And so in this unprecedented season of ongoing uncertainty and change and lockdown and COVID and all that. And as we look forward with uncertainty and trepidation and anxiety and fear. Friends, we can be certain that we need his Holy Spirit to work in us and through us to actually use us in our day-to-day -day lives. It's as simple as that. If you're a Christian watching this morning, as I read the New Testament, I, I see that you have the Holy Spirit. I think receiving the Holy Spirit goes hand in hand with coming to Christ, with being born again, with being made new. Well, all Christians have God's Spirit living in them. But as I read the Bible, I see that we can grieve his spirit and quench and thwart his work in us, his work in our lives and through our lives. It seems to me that sin and hardness of heart and grumbling and disunity and all those things can quench his work in us. Doesn't mean we lose him or don't have him. But it means that perhaps we're not as empowered as we might be. And so I want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, maybe even more so in this new season coming up, to ask God to fill you afresh. As we think about being a church empowered by his spirit, let's ask him corporately and individually to fill us afresh, to, to repent and to say sorry where we need to to daily put off the sinful nature, to daily put on Christ, to be filled afresh and equipped and empowered and renewed for whatever task he has for you for that day. Why not make that one of your morning prayers, one of your first prayers as you get out of bed in the morning, as you drag yourself out from under the duvet and you head downstairs to make a cup of tea or however you start your day. Why not make that a prayer? Lord, fill me afresh. Lord, I'm sorry for the day that's just gone. Please help me for this day ahead to, to put off the old self, to put off the sinful nature and to put on the Lord Jesus. Fill me afresh with your spirit. Please don't let me quench or thwart 
what he wants to do in and through me today. Maybe make that your daily prayer as I make it mine. The thing, other thing to notice as well, just very briefly, is that this empowering was a gift from God. Wait for the gift, says Jesus. This, this is not and cannot be self-generated. This cannot be worked up within us by our own efforts. The apostles had to receive it. It had to come from God. All they could do was pray. They could ask him and wait. They couldn't make it happen themselves. And we must grab that as well, that we are dependent upon God to give us his spirit. Yeah, as Luke again told his disciples further back in the gospel, if you then, though you are evil, now have to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so we need to ask him to do just that, to ask him. We are reliant upon him to fill us afresh, to fill us daily. And in our weakness to, to use us as he sees fit. I wonder how much do we do that? How much do we ask him to fill us afresh? Do we ask him for, for this gift that we might live for him today? And so friends, press on. Press on. We, we need to know that Jesus really rose again. Not just an idea, not just a poem, not just a story that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel a bit more brave and a bit less anxious. No, he really rose again. But secondly, as well, we need to know that he will really empower us to live for him. He gives us his spirit as a gift that we might live for him and serve him. Let's pray now before we sing. But we thank you for those two realities. We thank you that Jesus really rose again. We confess to you that sometimes we get wobbly and we question it or we get distracted by other things. Help us to, to know and to remember that his resurrection changes everything. Well, thank you too, Lord, that you empower us to live for you by your spirit. You know, we confess how easily we try and do things in our own strength, rather than asking you for your spirit to help us. And we confess too that how easily we can thwart and quench and block the work of your spirit in us and through us because of our sin and the hardness of our heart and our grumbling. We're sorry for that. Lord, help us to be those who daily put off the old self and daily put on Christ, filled afresh, equipped and enabled and empowered to live for you. Might that be our reality as individuals and even more so as the church together. Be at work in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.